So as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, as Trent has been going through and Debbie last week, I've noticed a little bit of a trend for Paul. Doesn't it seem a little bit like Paul has his hands full with all of these issues pertaining to divisions in the church? I can just imagine him getting these letters and is like, what are these people doing? And so we know that this letter, the, fir- the letter to the 1 Corinthians, is a response letter. So Paul's already received a letter from the Corinthian church. Um, so what we know is that there's already been some correspondence that the church in Corinth has written Paul and asked all of these questions about the church. And like Debbie was talking about the emojis, I'm pretty sure Paul would have used the face palm emoji. Like, what are these people doing? Like, what? <laughs> what? Why aren't they? Why don't they already know what's going on? And so, or or like the mind blown emoji that Debbie was talking about last week. And while we could feel bad for Paul for having to deal with all of these silly questions that we in Mountain Home would never ask, right? We would never ask these questions because we already know what's going on. That was a joke, yeah. Okay, the wind is not working with me today. (laughs) Um, I find it so essential, though, that these conversations were being had even in the early days of the church, right? Um, It's it's comforting, and, and and it's good to know that people were asking these questions and that it's okay for us to ask these questions, right? While the issues we face today may not be entirely the same as the church in Corinth, um, we might be asking things like, how is a Christian supposed to handle politics today? Oops, I'm struggling. We're good. How do we handle politics? What is the proper way to deal with racial injustice in our world? Am I supposed to wear a mask? Maybe we would ask Paul that. But most importantly, the question we should be asking is in what ways can we be a better representation of the kingdom of God in our world? And Paul might use the face palm emoji, like I said, but he would certainly have some advice for us, right? Just like he did for the church in Corinth. And so our passage today, 1 Corinthians 8, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to that passage. It's another one of these kind of issues of Paul dealing with questions raised by the Christians in Corinth. So we're going to dive in and read it. Um, So as you are willing, would you stand on your feet or in your hearts in honor of the reading of the word this morning? I'll be reading from the Common English Bible. First Corinthians chapter eight. Now concerning meat that has been sacrificed to a false God, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they should know. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So concerning the actual food involved in these sacrifices to false gods, we know that a false god isn't anything in this world and that there is no God except for the one God. Granted, there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. However, for us believers, there is one God the Father, All things come from him, and we belong to him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things exist through him, and we live through him. But not everybody knows this. Some are eating this food as though it really is food sacrificed to a real idol, because they were used to idol worship until now. Their conscience is weak because it has been damaged. Food won't bring us close to God. We're not missing out if we don't eat, and we don't have any advantage if we do. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. Suppose someone sees you, the person who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple. Won't the person with a weak conscience be encouraged to eat the meat that is sacrificed to false gods? 
the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences this way. This is why if food causes the downfall of a brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. So the title of today's sermon is why we should all be vegetarians. In fact, for our barbecue today, we're having tofu instead of pulled pork. Is that cool? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I feel like you might force me to resign if I was preaching on that in Mountain Home, Idaho. <laughs> How many of you have siblings? Yes, lots of us, lots of us. Um, do you remember a time when one of your older siblings, maybe you are the older sibling and you've done this, if so, shame on you, um, but has your older sibling ever convinced you to do, like, to do something, but it gets you in trouble, like they do it on purpose just to get you in trouble? Oh yeah, my siblings did that to me all the time. In fact, I remember one time when my friends and I wanted to hang out with our older brothers so bad, we thought they were the coolest people. And we thought, maybe we can just convince them to teach us something. And so we were probably six or seven when this happened, and our brothers were a few years older than us. And so in what I now know was an effort to get rid of us and to get us to stop hanging out with them, our older brothers told us that we should take the leftover like hard-boiled eggs from Easter that we had died and throw them at the cars driving by. <laughs> and we thought, that would be so fun. We won't get in trouble, right? And obviously they'd done it before, so they didn't get in trouble, did they? We were wrong. One of the cars that we threw an egg at turned around, came back, and we ran into the house, and they came up and knocked on the door and told my friend's mom what had happened. And we got in big trouble. Meanwhile, our older brothers were just standing there chuckling because we were getting scolded for what they told us would be no big deal. So our passage today is a little, bit, a little bit like this story. There are some nuances, but of the older and wiser ones convincing the younger and weaker ones to do something to get them in trouble. Granted, there, like I said, there are a few nuances that make these stories different, but let's jump into our passage um, and see what advice Paul has for us today. And I don't normally preach in this way. I usually kind of pick a small portion of the passage and kind of go with that. But today I'm going to kind of walk us through the passage of 1 Corinthians 8, because I think that's what this passage calls for us to do is to kind of piece it all together so we can see the bigger picture at the end. Oh, I need this. One second. Okay, so the first three verses say this. Now concerning meat that has been sacrificed to a false god, we know that we all have knowledge, right? Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. If anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they should know. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So that's what the first part of the passage says, right? And I imagine in their letter to Paul, the Corinthians, thank you, wind. The Corinthians, were prob they probably wrote something like, so Paul, like, it's okay that we're eating this meat, right? I mean, we know that idols don't actually exist, so it's okay that we eat it. And is Paul saying that knowledge is a bad thing? I don't necessarily think that's the case, but what Paul is saying is that if we have to choose between acting from a place of knowledge or acting from a place of love, we should always choose to act from a place of love. That seems easy enough to do, right? We can do that. We can act from a place of love. But I think this is one of those instances where we can say, easier said than done. 
See, most of these Christians that Paul is talking to in Corinth, they're probably, they're likely good Christian people, maybe even great Christian people like ourselves, right? Another joke. I mean, you're all great, but (laughs) as they've been eating this meat that is sacrificed to idols in the temple. So now their reason for doing this and being okay in the eyes of the Lord um, is that we know that, they say, we know that a false God doesn't mean anything in this world and there's no God except for the one God. So they go about eating this meat, knowing that the ritual in which the meat was sacrificed was technically faulty. So what's the big deal? We can eat this meat. It's totally fine. And Paul agrees with them. He says, of course we know that these false gods don't actually exist. Hence why we call them false gods, right? And he continues in agreement with kind of this poetic piece of scripture. He said, granted, there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. However, for us believers, and this is where it gets cool, he says, there is one God, the Father. We can agree with that. All things come from him, and we belong to him. Yeah, And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things exist through him, and we live through him. We can get on board with that, right? So as long as we acknowledge that the meat is just meat, and that the idol it was sacrificed for doesn't actually exist, according to us, then we're all good, right? I can eat my barbecue ribs in peace. Who cares if the meat was sacrificed? I'm just eating it as regular old meat because I have the freedom and the right to do that. However, we've reached an issue for Paul. Christians in Corinth have now mistaken their knowledge for freedom because they know that idols don't actually exist. They are free to do what they wish with the meat. And if only it were that simple, if only everything were that simple, right? And perhaps it should be, I don't know. But Paul is concerned here for the church in Corinth for another reason entirely. He says, but not everybody knows this. Some are eating this food as though it really is food sacrificed to a real idol because they were used to idol worship until now. Their conscience is weak because it has been damaged. So in other words, you can go ahead and eat your meat. You can eat it. That's fine. But have you considered what your actions might be saying to another Christian who doesn't have the same knowledge as you do and the same freedom as you do? See, perhaps you bring a new friend to church or The Corinthians bring a new friend to the temple for a meal and the meat comes out. The meat starts to come out. And in your mind, you're thinking, "Mm, this is my favorite part of the meal. You're going to love it. But in their mind, they're probably thinking, isn't this forbidden? Am I going to get in trouble with God for eating this meat because it was sacrificed to idols? See, Paul makes it clear that the problem isn't really in the eating of the meat. It's not in the act of eating. It's in the lack of awareness that that action does. So Paul continues, food won't bring us close to God, right? We agree with this. We're not missing out if we don't eat, and we don't have any advantage if we do. But watch out, or else this freedom of yours might be a problem for those who are weak. Different versions of the Bible say in verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. One writer that I was um, reading this week uh, to, to kind of prepare for this message, he pointed out an issue which is really quite simple, but maybe it goes over our heads sometimes. He says, by pressing for this right in the name of gnosis or knowledge, these Christians were apparently abusing some others among them who could not make these fine distinctions. So that's, that's what Paul's talking about when he says weak conscience. It doesn't mean that these Christians are less than 
those who have the knowledge. They simply don't know that idols don't actually exist, right? They don't have this knowledge yet. So it's the responsibility of those of us who, uh, who have this knowledge to act from a place of love in nurturing these newer Christians, right? Part of that nurture is to be aware of the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters. So going back to the story about my friend and I with the Easter eggs, um, we were perhaps too young and unaware to the fact that doing this would actually get us in trouble because it just sounded like a fun activity, right? Throwing eggs at cars. We should have known. That was a silly thing to do. But granted, our brothers knew exactly what they were doing. And perhaps the Christians in Corinth weren't actually really aware that they were creating a stumbling block for the newer Christians, but that simply goes to show that their actions were sourced from a place of their gnosis or their knowledge, gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge, instead of agape or love. So in fewer words, you may have your rights and your freedom and knowledge, but once that freedom impedes the faith of another, Paul says you might as well throw it out the window because you are worse off than your brother or sister for having caused that confusion. See, Paul doesn't joke around when it comes to being a stumbling block for another. He mentions the stumbling block principle so many times in his letters that it's clear it isn't just an issue for the church in Corinth. In Romans chapter 14, 13, he says, Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. In Galatians, he reminds us of the proper use of freedom, or he's reminding the Galatians and also us. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then lastly, he makes sure to remind the church in Corinth that he, as a pastor, or as a, as a minister, as a missionary, is careful not to be the cause of someone else's stumbling. stumbling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, he says, We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So even as a pastor, he's like, I need to be careful of what I say and of what I do, so as not to cause somebody else to stumble. So this is clearly an important issue for Paul, right? probably because he has seen so many instances where people were falling away from the church because of what somebody else did to them, what another Christian did or said. Also, he's no stranger to being a stumbling block for Christians, right? We know Paul's story, that that was basically his job before he encountered Jesus. And really, I think this comes down to an issue of, of Christian ethics. And I won't get too deep here unless this turns into a philosophy lesson, which would be fine. I love philosophy. But Paul really is trying to get at is what is the right thing to do in this instance? What is the right thing for the Corinthians to do? The knowledgeable Christians are relying on their own knowledge, right? And freedom to guide their actions. And Paul is urging them that this is a grave mistake. The ethical issue is between allowing our actions to be guided by love or guided by knowledge. So the same writer that I was talking about earlier, he said, the aim of Christian ethics is not self-sufficiency, which requires proper knowledge. Rather, its aim is the benefit and advantage of a sister or brother. He continues, behavior that is based singularly on knowledge can lead to all the wrong actions. It not only fails to build up former idol worshipers, it destroys them, not to mention puffs up 
those insisting on rights and freedom. When I read that, I was like, ouch, like calling me out. So our Christian identity, my, my response to this is our Christian identity should rarely be driven by knowledge and power, if ever. It should always, however, be driven by a seeking after the good of another, by the love of our brothers and sisters. Our Christian identity should rarely be driven by knowledge and power, if ever. It should always, however, be driven by seeking after the good of another, by loving our brothers and sisters. So Paul might say, don't be so deceived as to think your knowledge is the answer to an issue. It's not. It might get you so far, but it won't get you very far. This is why in the beginning of our passage, he says, if anyone thinks they know something, they don't yet know as much as they should know. So if you think you have all the knowledge, then you actually have a long way to go. But if somebody loves God, then they are known by God. A lot of scholars actually think that our English translation has muddled that last part a little bit. Many of them think that it should be translated this way. But if somebody loves God, then that person truly knows. In other words, someone who truly loves their brother and sister and Christ, that person is on their way to holiness and sanctification. Either way we translate it, though, I think it's pretty clear what we have to do, right? We have to shift our thinking from a place of justifying our actions on the basis of what we know to a place of justifying our actions on the basis of how we love. Of course, we don't have much shifting to do here in Mountain Home, right? We're all good. <laughs> and that could, be, that could be the end of the sermon. That would be, that would be a decent sermon, right? but this is where things get really hairy. Paul always likes to take it a step further. <laughs> he says, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak consciences in this way. See, it would have been much nicer if Paul had just said, all right, guys, you probably shouldn't be eating this meat because it's causing your fellow believers to stumble, so you should probably just not do it. That would have been enough, right? Well, for Paul, wrong. He continues. See, Paul doesn't mess around, like I said, when it comes to sinning against a brother or sister, because to him, that is exactly the same as sinning against Christ. That's a pretty big deal. For him, there is no difference. The Corinthians didn't see their actions as a sin issue, though, but Paul does. And he's pretty adamant that the issue is not the food, like I said earlier. No advantage if you eat it, no disadvantage if you don't. but it's in their lack of awareness, the Corinthians. They're not the, these knowledgeable Christians, right? Having what they, what they want. It's their lack of awareness of their actions causing a stumbling block for their brother or sister. And I think we all lack that awareness sometimes, right? I know I do. See, Christ died for all, and not just those who have this so-called knowledge that he's talking about. So it's obvious when we hurt a brother or sister by our actions or by insisting that we maintain our rights or our freedom or our knowledge or whatever it is that we're insisting, we're missing the point. And that is precisely what Paul is saying to the, in the whole letter to the Corinthians. He's saying, you guys are missing the point. 
In staff meeting this week, I was joking with the staff about how confusing Paul is sometimes. See, last week, Debbie talked about marriage, and Paul was like, you should stay single, but you should also get married if being single is too hard, but you should probably stay single. Kind of confusing, right? You should refrain from this action, but you can do it in these instances if it makes sense. You should stop eating meat, but you could eat it if it's okay. Like, if it's okay that it's not a stumbling block for your brother or sister. It's like, can you be any less clear, Paul? But I want to point out something that might blow your mind, because it blew mine a little bit. It's pretty simple. See, Paul may kind of go back and forth on these issues, um, but his primary message always seems to come out in his, in his letters. Paul seems to always return to the fact that the love of Christ is what should capture us and guide our actions. It's not really about whether or not you get married. It's about love. It's not whether or not you eat meat. It's about love. It's not even about whether or not you are a Republican or a Democrat. It's about love. It's about doing the most loving thing in any given moment. So my question to us, are our actions driven by knowledge or are they driven by love? And Paul ends with a classic, here's what I would do if I were in your shoes statement. He says, this is why food, or this is why if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I won't eat meat ever again, or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. And this is why we should all be vegetarian. Just kidding, I'm joking. I'm not vegetarian. <laughs> Honestly, in order to understand how this passage is relevant to us today, which I, I believe wholeheartedly that it is, right? All of scripture can speak to us in some way. Yeah, that we could take this phrase and, and replace the word food with a lot of other things, right? If we were kind of to take it and put it in our context, um, not in an effort to change what the Bible is saying, but maybe to understand the heart of what Paul is saying. Perhaps we could say, this is why if my comments on Facebook cause the downfall of my brother or sister, I will be careful with what I say and how I say things or else I may cause a brother or sister to fall. That's a big one today, right? If my insistence on having my rights causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I will not impose my opinions about those things on others, or else I will cause my brother or sister to fall. So I think we kind of get what Paul is saying, right? If these things that I'm insisting on cause a brother or sister to fall, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that these things aren't a stumbling block to those who are weaker or don't have this knowledge that we're talking about. If we'll, and I could go on, right? I could, I could come up with a lot of those phrases. See, knowledge will only get us so far, but it, it won't really get us anywhere without love, especially in the kingdom of God. And we'll get into it in a few weeks in chapter 13 when we get there, but Verse two of that chapter says this, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Love is that missing ingredient that makes everything whole. Without love, folks, we are nothing. People who are looking for a place to worship, they're not looking for a church with a lot of smart people, right? They're looking for a church that loves well. Amen. So my challenge to you and to myself is to take a few moments at the end of each day and reflect. Examine your day and think about how 
maybe knowledge got in the way of loving somebody else. Or look at the ways you loved someone and do that again the next day. I promise you it will change your life if you take these moments of self-reflection. There's actually a practice called the examine um, that many Christians practice in order to reflect on the day and prepare for the day ahead. It's something that's been beneficial in my life. Um, and if you want to know more about it, obviously you can talk to me. Um, Trent knows a little bit about the examine as well. And so if you want more resources, let us know. There are so many out there. Um, but at this time, would you stand now to receive the benediction? Church, in the moments when we're tempted to lean on our knowledge for answers, may we be reminded of our call to first lean on love. May we be a people who love well above all else. Before you go in peace, Debbie's coming up to give some instructions. <laughs>